Our Old Testament reading today comes from Leviticus, um, chapter 11, verses 44 through 45. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord is forever. Thanks be to God. Well, it is so good to see all of you here, and for those of you who are at home, uh, we miss you, and um, we are looking forward. It looks like we're getting closer um, to a time where we will all be able to come back together. People are talking about herd immunity and things like that, so I'm not going to make too many comments about things above my pay grade, but just the Lord... Uh, is gracious and good, and as far as we know, no one in our congregation um, has uh, been seriously affected by COVID. Praise the Lord for that. Today we start a uh, six-part series on holiness called Becoming Like Jesus, and I felt, I felt deeply in my spirit um, that we needed to talk about this, and it's, um, I had planned a six-part series building up to Easter on seven, Jesus' seven sayings from the cross. I had mapped out my sermon plan at the beginning of the year. I had the text, the title of every sermon. I was feeling really good, you know, sort of like a little long-range planning there. And, um, but something inside of me just, as I, as I witness what's happening uh, to the church in America, um, I find myself more troubled than I've ever been in my entire life. And I've grown up, you know, in the church and as a Christian, and I've never been more worried. Maybe worried is not the right word, but I've never been more concerned for the church in America. And I'm not, I'm not a pessimist. I'm not a sort of sky is falling kind of person. You know, I, f- I feel like, you know, the church is an ebb and flow kind of thing. At any time in history, it is either stronger or weaker. You know, it kind of goes like this. But, but I can tell you that as I, as I look at what is happening to churches in America and their conviction about God's truths, it feels like, it's not feels like, churches are dropping, they're, they're, they're dropping like dominoes. I mean, they're just falling like dominoes. They're dropping like flies. They're one after another, it seems that there's this compromise. Uh, whether it is um, in people's personal walk with the Lord or uh, a church's, the, the church's position on things in our culture, Uh, So we're starting the six-part series. This is the first sermon of our series on holiness. And if you've never read a book on holiness or pursuing personal holiness, you need to put this at the very top of your list of things to do. And I want to commend to you three resources today. Uh, And these are some resources that I've been consulting. And they are Kevin DeYoung's book, The Hole in Our Holiness, which is a very small book you could probably read through in a weekend. 
J.I. Packer's book, Rediscovering Holiness, which is also an excellent resource, and John MacArthur's book, The Vanishing Conscience. And so um, go out and buy one or two or all three. You can't go wrong. Um, last week, stories came out revealing the sordid details of the private life of one of the world's most famous Christian apologists and evangelists. And there have been allegations of rape, of um, abuse during massages, and hiding hundreds of pictures of women on his computer. And the person in question, fortunately for them, for him, passed away several months ago last year and doesn't have to face any of this. But in the wake of it all, his ministry is preparing to downsize. Now, I'm not mentioning his name because I don't want today's sermon to be about him. I want it to be about the topic at hand. But if you, it's public knowledge, and you can approach me or one of the elders after service if you would like to be directed towards maybe a helpful article or some information about it. But his ministry, which is a large organization, is preparing to downsize amidst the investigation and has expressed regret for misplaced trust in a leader who used his esteem and influence to conceal his sexual misconduct. It never ceases to amaze me that a culture like ours who has dispensed with sin and guilt is shocked when public leaders have such private failings, right? Perhaps it's a sign that our collective conscience still has a little life left in it, or perhaps the dissonance is due to the fact that the modern church gives such little priority to holiness. And there may be good reason for that. In past, churches and movements with not great theology have used holiness, the idea of holiness and sanctification as a means of guilt manipulation. And I think most of us would, would agree with that. We've seen holiness done really bad, haven't we? Where it's used as a cudgel to manipulate people into doing things. Uh, but the improper use of something does not negate its proper use. Does that make sense? In other words, holiness is a biblical idea. The New Testament is filled with calls to holiness. We're familiar with the command to abstain from fleshly lust, to mortify the deeds of the body, to make no provision for the flesh, to love not the world, to flee immorality, to put off the old man and put on the new, to think on what is true and right and honorable and pure, and to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, to wear the breastplate of righteousness, to buffet our body, to bring it into subjection, to present our bodies as holy 
and acceptable unto God. We're familiar with these, or we should be. We're familiar with the call of the Apostle Paul to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, and the call to walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill fleshly lust to lay aside the sin and weight that so easily besets us. Many of us have heard those calls in Scripture before. We know that God is holy and that we're supposed to be holy as well. The Apostle Peter, quoting Leviticus 11, which Stacy read a moment ago, wrote, As he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. We know that. We believe it. The church knows it, but seems to be losing the battle. So what's the problem? What has gone so terribly wrong that Christian, not just Christian leaders, but everyday believers are losing the battle with holiness, losing the battle for holiness? I must admit that at my age and in my position in life, I feel more of a personal burden and pressure to master personal holiness than I have ever felt in my entire life. Along with the elders, God has entrusted this flock into my care, and I have an awesome burden to live a life above reproach, to live a life of holiness. That is a burden that I cling to. It is a burden that I embrace, that I willingly bear. To be a reflection of Jesus' own character. And besides that, I have four children who look up to me, and they are now having children who will look up to me as their papa. And there is a great burden to be an example to them, and in fact, the faith of my four children has largely in, largely uh, been influenced by my own and my wife's own example, although we have not been perfect. And I'm sickened by the thought that some moral failing of mine will tarnish their view and respect for me. And I'm more afraid that some moral failing in my life, how it might weaken their faith and rock their trust in Christ. I have accountability partners, the elders here, close personal friendships and other pastors, and of course, none more so than my wife. But no matter how holy my outward existence appears, and no matter how hard I try to manicure my public image in the view of other people, no matter how transparent my relationships are with those I'm closest to, um, even they don't know what I think. They don't know what's going on in my mind. And if you're going to be holy, you have to win the battle on the inside. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 1 and 12, says this, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, 
not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. There's a lot of good words to focus on right there. Godly sincerity, holiness, the grace of God. But this morning, I want to focus on the word conscience. Perhaps this is the first time you've ever seen that word in Scripture or heard a sermon on the subject. It's the first time I've ever preached a sermon on the conscience. But the Bible has a lot to say about the conscience, and this is the main idea today that I want you to take away or maybe write down. The conscience is the battleground where holiness is fought. The conscience is the battleground where holiness is fought. And if you lose the battle with your conscience, if you lose the battle on the inside, you will lose it on the outside. For the sake of conscience, men have endured persecution, torture, and death. And it was Martin Luther at the Diet of Worm, when asked to recant his evangelical faith, said, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. The Puritans referred to the conscience as God's deputy with us, God's spy in our bosoms, God's sergeant he employs to arrest the sinner. James Packer says, the conscience is a register recording deeds, a witness declaring facts, a mentor prohibiting evil, and a judge assessing punishment. The conscience, he says, is God's monitor in the soul. Paul says in Romans 2.15 that it is the conscience that either accuses or excuses a man's actions. It is the conscience that either holds you to account or lets you off the hook for the things that you do. What he was getting at is, if the conscience alerts people to the moral quality of what they do or what they don't do, the conscience is very, very important. The conscience makes people feel guilt, shame, and fear of future judgment. And the conscience should make us feel guilt, shame, and fear of judgment when we sin ultimately, for that is ultimately what pushes sinners towards repentance. The grieved and guilty conscience. And if the conscience is not functioning properly, there can be no repentance. If the conscience is not able to drive you to guilt and fear of judgment when you sin, there will be no need for repentance, no felt need for God's forgiveness. The grieved and guilty conscience drives us to God. But our culture has been waging a war on the conscience for decades. 
And we often find ourselves with no need for guilt or fear of judgment or shame. We're, we're too sophisticated as a culture for those things. We've pushed past those things. We've dispensed with guilt. We have dispensed ultimately with the conscience. James Packer again says, Satan's strategy is to corrupt and desensitize, and if possible, kill our consciences. The relativism, materialism, narcissism, and hedonism of today's Western world help him mightily toward his goal. His task is made yet simpler by the way in which the world's moral weaknesses have been taken into the contemporary church. John MacArthur, in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, calls the conscience the soul's automatic warning system and gives a sobering illustration. In 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet flying in Europe crashed into a mountain in Spain, killing everyone on board instantly. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery when they retrieved what was recorded in the little black box. The cockpit recorder revealed that several minutes before impacting the mountain, a shrill computer synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system said, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. And inexplicably, the pilot was recorded as saying, shut up, gringo, and flipped off the switch, silencing the warning voice. Moments later, the plane hit the mountain, killing everyone on board, and the plane disintegrated into thousands of pieces. And when I read that, I thought, that's a clear illustration of how most people treat their conscience. They hear the warning signs, but they flip the switch off and they crash. How many people have destroyed their lives, their families, because they refuse to listen to the voice telling them, pull up, pull up, pull up? Countless. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.19 that by rejecting conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. The conscience is a gift from God. It tells us when something is wrong. It warns us. When we're in danger, when we're about to do something that is not good, it's like pain sensors in the body that tell us when something is wrong. We recoil from a hot plate or we lift our bare feet after stepping on a sharp object like a Lego. The conscience is something that God has given us. It warns us, it tells us when something is wrong. Imagine what would happen if we had no pain sensors. It wouldn't be long before you destroyed your body. 
The conscience is God's warning system placed in your soul so you don't destroy yourself spiritually. But multitudes today respond to their conscience by attempting to suppress it, overrule it, or silence it. And that is exactly what had to have happened to this Christian leader over the course of years, if not decades. The conscience, that automatic warning system saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. And that switch time and time again being shut off. That is the only way to explain how someone, especially a Christian, could engage in that kind of behavior, which apparently has hurt so many people. And who knows how many people's faith will be rocked because they looked up to him. So what do we do knowing this? Well, the first thing we have to realize is, number one, that the conscience is the soul's warning system. The conscience is the soul's warning system. It's a gift of God built into every human soul, that inner voice that senses moral violation. It's what separates us as image bearers from animals. The conscience. And everyone has a conscience, not just Christians. If you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist, your conscience functions in response to the highest level of moral law that you believe. That's what the conscience does. It holds you up to the highest standard of morality that you know. But the conscience's one weakness is that it can be overridden, like the Avianca airline pilot overriding the warning system. You can shut it off, it's hard work to do, but you can silence it by rejecting its messages and signals. The Ponzi schemer knows it's wrong to swindle people out of their money. The sexually loose and promiscuous know their actions are immoral. The mob hitman knows murder is wrong. The liar knows his lies are untruths and wrong. But they do it anyway because they override the conscience. Why? Why do they do it? Why do we do it? Because the conscience is part of our human nature. And guess what? Our human nature is fallen too. The conscience is not the voice of God. It can only echo as much of the voice of God as it's exposed to. This is another problem with modern Christian culture is Christians don't know their Bible. Christians don't know the Bible. And so the second thing we realize is that, number two, the conscience is not infallible. In other words, if a person keeps misinforming the conscience with bad information, with godless lies, with worldly logic and philosophies about the human heart and why people do what they do, its signals will be misleading. 
Hitler could liquidate millions of Jewish-German citizens, many who fought bravely in World War I for Germany, because of his misinformed conscience. Have a whole discussion about the people he was reading. Nietzsche and Darwin and others. And so the conscience needs something to guide it. It needs the right information. And what does it need? It needs divine truth. It needs the law of God. And don't think for a minute, because you are a Christian, your conscience doesn't need God's law. It does. Of the new covenant, God said to the prophet Jeremiah, this is the covenant, speaking of the new covenant, that I will make with my people, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And the prophet Ezekiel, speaking of the new covenant, writes, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. The blessing and beauty and power of the new covenant is that God's heart and desire is that we would keep his commands, his rules, his law, and do what? Obey them. The conscience informed by God's commandments will not steer you wrong. And it takes a lot of work when the conscience is informed by the commandments of God to do the wrong thing. It's tough work. That's how powerful the conscience is. You have to do a lot of suppressing, a lot of overriding when the conscience has the right information to still go ahead and do the wrong thing, and it's hard to do. The commandments of God we need to see are not oppressive. They're life-giving and they're meant for our flourishing. Because when you keep the commandments of God, you flourish. Your life is beautiful. They're meant for your good, your well-being, your thriving, your flourishing. They're not meant to rob you of fun. Because as we have seen this past week and have been seeing in our culture, when you dispense with the law of God, it brings ruin. You crash. It brings disaster. It doesn't bring happiness. I don't think for one moment that that Christian leader was happy in the things he was doing. He had a momentary satisfaction and pleasure from the things he did, but I can only imagine how tortured his soul was. Because he did not have the accountability partners and was suppressing his conscience, he stayed in that place. The commandments of God are so important for the conscience and our lives as Christians that Jesus, in the Great Commission, said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do what? Obey everything I have, what? 
commanded you. Go to the uttermost part of the uttermost parts of the world and teach people my commandments. Let their consciences be informed by my commandments. New life, abundant life, redeemed life is a life where the conscience lives in harmony with the commandments. It is informed by the commandments of God. God's commands give us life and keep us from shipwreck. A conscience informed by God's word keeps us from crashing. It keeps us from disaster. It keeps us from spiritual shipwreck. I hope I'm not coming on too strong. My conviction and indignation is against what is happening to the church in America. And I try not to be negative from the pulpit. I'm really an optimist. I really believe that the kingdom will triumph in the end, but America may fall for that to happen. It is a sobering thing to witness not only the wicked in our culture that have dispensed with the conscience, but obviously, clearly, even the church. It is troubling. And my goal this morning is not for us to say, look at them, look at them. It's, where is my heart? Am I informing my conscience? Have I been utilizing what God has given me to equip and strengthen my conscience? It is, it is ironic, you have to admit, that in our technological age of information that the Bible is more ubiquitous than it ever has been in human history. And maybe that's why we take it for granted. I mean, you can download 50 free apps, Bible apps on your phone. In fact, I would suggest most of us probably have a couple Bible apps where we can read the Bible you know, anywhere. Doctor's appointment, laying up in bed at night, you know, clicking on our phone, and we probably don't. The Bible is probably read less than it ever has been. We don't value the Word of God and the commandments, which are meant for our flourishing and our happiness. When the conscience is informed by the commandments of God, it doesn't enslave you, it liberates you. God's commands give us life. And the third and the most important thing I want us to see, so number one, the conscience is the soul's warning system, but the conscience is not infallible, number two. It is not absolute. It needs guidance. It needs the right information. But number three, the conscience must be strengthened by grace. The conscience must be strengthened by grace. The conscience needs the double grace of the law and grace. 
the double blessing of the law and grace. When we disobey, when we go against our conscience and rightly feel guilty. So this is where I think maybe some confusion about our theology of justification by faith has fallen, you know, afoul or something, is we don't think we should feel bad when we sin. That's wrong. (laughs) That is wrong. In fact, not feeling grieved when you sin is exactly how someone who professes faith falls into grievous sins, making their whole life and ministry one big hypocrisy. So when we go against and disobey our conscience and rightly feel guilty for violating God's commands, we need something. Our conscience must be strengthened by something, strengthened by grace. And what is that grace but the blood of Christ? Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The whole thrust of that passage is that the blood of Christ cleanses us, and once our conscience has been freed from the guilt and shame of our sins, we are liberated to truly serving God. Liberated and purified from dead works. And Hebrews 10, 22, again with the conscience, says, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. There is nothing like a clean conscience a clear conscience. It'll help you sleep at night. It'll give you joy, lasting joy. Even if you're not satisfied with your life circumstances, a clean and clear conscience is grounding. It is like an anchor. It gives you peace. When you do the right thing, when you listen to your conscience, you have peace. Even if your life is not going the way you want it to, when you've done the right thing, there is peace. There is the kind of joy that sustains you, not the fleeting happiness that comes from a momentary experience. But when you've obeyed the conscience, which is God's monitor in the soul, a gift from God, a gift from God to keep you close to him to keep you on the right track. It gives you a full assurance of faith. And in closing, Charles Wesley, this, I don't know that this song was ever published, but you know, he wrote thousands of hymns. And of the conscience he wrote, I want a principle within of watchful, godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. I want the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire to catch the wandering of my will 
and quench the kindling fire. From thee that I no more stray, no more thy goodness grieve. Grant me the filial awe, I pray, the tender conscience give. Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is nigh, and keep it still awake. Almighty God of truth and love, to me thy power impart. The mountain from my soul remove, the hardness from my heart. Oh, may the least omission pain my reawakened soul, and drive me to that blood again, which makes the wounded whole. He wrote that about the conscience. It's powerful. It's compelling. Lord, that we should have a revived conscience, that our conscience should be sensitive to your commands, to your word, to your law, that we might heed the gift you've given us in the conscience, O God. This is the first sermon of our six-part series on holiness and pursuing a personal holiness. And I hope this morning your ears have perked up for what you've heard. I know writing this sermon was deeply, deeply convicting. And it made me believe more than I have ever believed that the word of God is the answer. That what God has given us in his holy word is the remedy. That more than ever, we need God's word. His authoritative, inspired, life-healing word. His commands, in it are his commands and his law, his gospel, his promises. Everything that God has provided for us, that the spirit can make use of, that the conscience needs. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would reawaken the Christian conscience in America. Give us such deep conviction for how we have neglected your commands. That with fearful reverence and awe, we might run to you and cling to your word and your commands. That you would pull the scales back from our eyes to see the wicked state that the American church has fallen into. That we might mourn and lament and grieve where we've come as a nation. Where the church is. Father, we know from your word that wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be that go therein, but narrow is the path that leads to righteousness, and few there be that find it. May we be numbered in that few. May, O oh God, our conscience be captive to the word of God again. And may our hearts long to live in that grace, in that power, and in that deep, deep conviction that you call us to personal holiness, and you call us to be like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.